Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This Insight episode comes from full episode 75 with Graham Cumming. Graham is a professor at James Cook University in Townsville, Australia, and the director of the Australian Research Council Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. In this clip, Graham talks with Stefan about the lack of methodological transparency in many data sets and the implications of this. Graham discusses two of his past projects, one on the spread of avian influenza and the other on marine park permitting to illustrate the importance of understanding and using scale correctly when doing research. This is the In Common Podcast. It seems that this idea of scales we've mentioned a few times has really been a through line through most of your work. And even I think coming up today, we might talk about after this is about scale mismatch and institutional mismatch and uh, management. And how do we go about a process of determining what is the appropriate scale to look at in a particular context, I guess, is the, the question I'm interested in. I, I tend to think there's no single correct scale for a study. Um, so ideally, but it's data intensive. Um, mm. I, if I'm starting a program from scratch, I would aim for a multi-scale design where you think about the, the finest um, grain or the finest temporal resolution of the process you, you're interested in. Uh, and then you think about its broadest extent and try and span that range. Um, I can give you an example if it would help. Yes, please. <laughs> so we did this work on, on uh, avian influenza and water birds in Southern Africa. And the question there was, what role do wild birds play in spreading um, avian influenza around the landscape? And uh, so it's a multi-scale problem. You've got fine scale transmission between birds, you know, at the scale of a meter. Then there's potential transmission through water bodies um, or, uh, or shared feeding sites. And then you've got movements of birds around Africa, which could be at very broad scales. You know, some of the some of the birds that might potentially be carrying avian influenza flying to Europe and back every year from Southern Africa. So it's a very multi-scale problem. So the way we designed that, uh, given that we were limited to working in Southern Africa, was to set up five um, sites spread sort of quite far around on east, west, and north, south gradients. So we had two in South Africa, one in the south, one in the north, uh, one in Zimbabwe, and then one in Botswana and one in Mozambique. And then within each of those sites um, uh, to set up sort of 10 to 15 counting locations, counting and sampling locations. So that's a finer scale um, sort of survey design. And then the temporal side, we had two years of, of good funding for that particular project. So three of the sites we visited, uh, basically we were there two weeks every two months. And then the other two were just harder to get to. So that ended up being every four months but it's still meant we were able to get a balanced design in space and time, and then look at differences between sites, differences within sites, you know, the kinds of contrasts we wanted to, to get at. Whereas I think an approach saying, oh, we're just gonna look at this at one scale and focus on a single wetland would have been much less productive. Yeah, I'm wondering about some of these scale issues when you talked about earlier that a lot of these higher level publications uh, rely extensively on, on secondary data, data which basically wasn't collected by yourself. and one of the challenges that I see in reusing some of the, the current social ecological frame data at the moment is that uh, we kind of lack this idea of methodological transparency. I think methodological transparency seems to be pushed a little bit to the back as the need for discussions and policy relevance seems to come up to the 
up front a little bit more. And I'm wondering if there's a little crowding out there, but it does seem problematic to me that some data sets are perhaps integrated when they're not really looking at the same scales. So, so one of the biggest problems we had on the Duck project was just getting everybody at every site. I had a core team in Cape Town, but we also couldn't have done it without some, some very nice collaborators particularly in Zimbabwe and, and in um, Mozambique. But one of the challenges we had was getting people to stick with the sampling protocol, <laughs> you know, to try and make sure that everything was done the same way. Uh, we specified half hour point counts. And then, so you sit there for half an hour and count all the birds you see within 150 meter radius. And we needed that long because at some of our sites, you know, you could easily count a thousand water birds in that period. But people at sites that were much slower would be like, ah, oh, you know, there was nothing there. I thought I'd just leave after 10 minutes. And we're like, no, you, know, you can't do that. You've got to count the full half hour so we know that nothing arrived after you'd gone. And, and this, is the, this is the challenge. So if it's hard enough on a single project where, you know, that I was leading, um, it's much, much harder to get different researchers to agree to these standard data collection protocols. But I think that's in a sense, that's what it's going to take. I mean, you can see in, um, in ecology, having a few standard protocols for things like how you count animals and being able to transfer those between continents or roll them out to citizen scientists to help collect data. Um, you've suddenly got these massive data sets for where different species occur. And so you've got longstanding uh, things like the breeding bird counts in America or the bird atlas in Southern Africa which you can use as a reference point and you can answer really interesting macroecological questions because you've got those data. So if there were the equivalent, um, I mean, there's a lot of public domain stuff that you, can, that you can kind of access in similar ways. And I've seen some exciting new um, developments in this space for social and economic systems. But if there were more of it, and in areas like institutional analysis, for example, if there were more of it, or at least more kind of carefully considered contrasts where people selectively sampled the same way in very different areas or across gradients. Um, you know, I think we could make progress much faster, but it really requires a team effort. Well, it reminds me, because I know you recently led a paper advocating for a post-Ostrom research agenda, and I know a lot of the common scholars have, have for a long time advocated for standardized protocols, coding books, et cetera, to, I think, solve uh, the problem that you outlined there. And there are also downsides, I think, to this. And I think one of the criticisms in this paper, which is in uh, the current opinion, environmental sustainability, we can, we can link to it in the show notes for this episode, is that it becomes a laundry list. Uh, it becomes too long. It becomes um, kind of a fascination with uh, saying that things are complex and too much or too little focus on trying to agree and come to a way to collect data, which can actually build towards uh, a theory. A social ecological theory, for example. And I was wondering, what was your process through in developing this paper? What was the motivation for kind of looking at what that problem is? Because I think the, the Ostrom social ecological systems framework and her research generally is, is a good case study for what you described. Yeah. So, I mean, you've worked with it and I've worked with it and, and people who've worked with the Ostrom framework know, you know, this is, this, there is this real risk of developing a laundry list. And I think we have to be quite selective, like in the same way that you can't interview someone for five hours. You know, every, every student I have who's doing an interview-based project, the first cut of the interviews is, is just way too long. You've got to narrow down and focus on what you can reasonably, yeah. pragmatically get. Yeah. 
Um, and it's the same with that Ostrom framework where we have to work out, you know, what are the critical variables and they won't be the same for every system. But I, I would like to think that at least for comparable systems, let's say for irrigation systems, you know, the amount of water going into the system is going to be a critical variable for just about any irrigation system. Mm -hmm. And so at least if we can get agreement on a smaller subset of things that, um, that you really, really need, uh, there may be scope there for developing theory. Um, I also think the role of models has been uh, downplayed or underused um, in this in, in the Ostrom area in general. So I think we should be doing more building of models and exploring with models and using models to help us say, well, this is an interesting variable, but it's not so important as opposed to this is a, a really important variable that we need more information on. So I, I'm not saying, I don't think there's a silver bullet, but I think um, it should be possible to come to agreement on a smaller subset of variables that's you know, kind of worth worth exploring, like just generally it will be useful. Um, and, and even some of that might be more kind of meta measurements, you know, things like diversity or number of number and kind of a particular sort of unit. You know, I think there, I think there's ways around some of it, but it lacks standard protocols and it lacks, um, uh, if it lacks that mechanistic understanding where there's a clear link from the data you're collecting to theory, then then that's also problematic. I think it would be useful to to maybe dive into this specific paper because I think it talks one about how do you pick and select a, a select amount of variables which are meaningful for a particular study and scale and this tying of social and ecological data together and this is a paper that uh, is published in One Earth, uh, which you led recently I believe last year, titled "Quantifying Social Ecological Scale Mismatches." mismatches suggest people should be managed at broader scales than than ecosystems and i found it a, a cool study design it seems like you had great access to some of the the permitting data in the in the great barrier reef marine park what did you guys do in this paper um what i like about this paper is we were able to get spatial data on institutions so it's, it's rules in use permits uh, it would have been nice to be able to complement that with actual use data so where people were going and what they were doing having a permit doesn't necessarily mean you're using that using that permit basically but what i like about it is um is the the aspect of being able to get spatially at aspects of the social system which is one of those things that i kind of there's actually surprisingly a few data sets i've encountered where you can do that nicely actually get at institutions and their and their spatial footprint so that's one thing and then and then what we've tried to do is to say um if we wanted to actually quantify scale mismatches rather than just saying because it's it's an appealing concept and i've it's i've been surprised by how widely it's been used um but a lot of it is just saying well we think there's a scale mismatch or you know so then i start thinking well how do you know how, how can you be sure there's a scale mismatch or is it just one scale mismatch or are there lots of scale mismatches you know how many scales have you got in your system it's not just a one scale system or a two scale system there are lots of stuff going on there right um, and is one of the scales mismatched or are they all mismatched with each other? Have you got five scales and four are mismatched and one's, you know, you can get yourself into knots this way. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Pretty easy, right? So I was thinking, well, what we need to try to do is to quantify those scales and to actually put numbers to them and then we can plot it out and we can answer these questions much more clearly. So it's a first uh, somewhat clumsy, but I think quite interesting step towards actually quantifying what are the scales. So we looked at the scales of permits, so the extent of of permits within the uh, marine park. And then we looked at the extensive ecological features that permits related to. 
particularly focusing on reefs and islands, um, all of which are, you know, the advantage of that study system is they're nice and clear to bound. You can say where's, where's reef and where's not reef reasonably easily in most circumstances, and there's good maps of those features. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pulled together a whole data set linking those, those different things and then took the, um, the polygons describing the institutions or describing the ecological features and uh, calculated the areas for all of them and then looked at how the distributions of those two data sets matched up or didn't match up. And it was interesting. It wasn't what I expected. I'd been expecting to find pretty much a normal distribution with, you know, with a clear cut uh, mean. And, you know, this is basically the scale that reefs exist at. Uh, and this is basically the scale of permitting. But many of the data sets were, were bimodal. So we broke down the permit data by the kind of permitting. A permit for controlling invasive species might be quite different to one for tourism, for example. Anyway, but, but what emerged from that was that the extents of permits for human use were often quite a lot larger than the extents of the ecosystems they were relating to. You know, so we mulled, we mulled over that a bit. And my collaborator, my co-author on the paper is, has been responsible. She's, she's no longer in that position, but she was responsible for many years for running the permitting program. So she had a lot of great insights into what permits involved and who was applying for them and how that whole process worked. A good sort of way of looking at it was be to imagine you're a, you're a biologist and you want to collect a small piece of coral that you can do a DNA test on for your taxonomic or molecular biology project. You don't get a permit for one square meter of reef because you don't know which square meter of reef your particular species of coral is going to grow on. So what you do is you go and get a permit to sample the whole reef or even a couple of reefs and you hope that your coral is going to be somewhere on those reefs right and then you go and you break off a, a tiny piece about the size of your thumb and that's actually all you take out of the park project. So if you think about it that way um, it kind of makes sense that people actually need to have choice. They need to have options. And the way they get those options in managing ecological systems is to have the option to manage it at a broader scale than they really need to. If you've got, if you, or another um, simile, if you're a, you know, if you're a farmer and you've got five fields, um, you don't have cows in all five of your fields. You run cows in two of your fields and then you can choose which field to put them in. Right. You know, it's the same. It's of actually, and the more the more I thought about it, the more I think it's actually quite a fundamental principle of how we manage natural resources. Is we like to have a, a broader uh, ability to manipulate the system than the thing we're really interested in. But what what the exercise as a whole shows so that that hypothesis may or may not be correct, right? It's still kind of early stage and needs testing and, and all the rest of it. Um, but what I found interesting was that going through the exercise of trying to quantify stuff. And then looking at what those quantitative analyses showed actually led me to a different understanding of the problem than I'd had before. And I would never have, it, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me that this might be a, a reasonable hypothesis without going through that exercise. Wow, that's what, that's what we all want from projects. <laughs> <I feel. laughs> yeah, sure. We do a project and it tells us something completely different than we thought and then we, we learn something. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.